0: Do you know that we have a free Childhood Cancer Facebook community and a free mental health professionals network group? Make sure to join through the links in the summary. If you haven't taken our PTSD after cancer quiz, make sure to check out the links below. Get added to our list to receive free resources to help you heal from the impact of childhood cancer. Be the first to know when we will offer EMDR intensives and support groups for teens, parents, and adult survivors of childhood cancer. Hi, and welcome to today's episode. Before we jump right in, I wanted to just quickly come in and say, hi, I'm Adriana. And if you could, please hit subscribe to this podcast if you have listened to my other ones and you've enjoyed some of the resources that I put out there. And if you could also kindly rate this podcast, I would love a five-star review, but you know, you rate it as you feel I have earned. So if you could, please Subscribe and submit a review and share this with anyone that you feel would benefit from Family Chemotherapy Podcast. Thank you so much. Welcome to Family Chemotherapy, where we discuss ways to cope through a pediatric cancer diagnosis. I'm your host, Adriana Lewin. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Family Chemotherapy. I'm very excited and honored to have our next guest. This is Megan Schaefer, and she is at Nationwide Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Thank you so much for joining me today, Megan. Thank you
1: for having me. I'm very excited to talk about this topic with you today. Should I be calling you Dr. Megan Schaefer? That works. It doesn't matter (laughs) to me. (laughs) I'm like, I just introduced
0: you as Megan Schaefer, and I realized I think you have a PhD, right? I do, but it's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming and joining me today because this topic is one that, um, as I told you off on on the side, basically, that it's not something that I'm super familiar with. Um, I have had clients that have had to go through this and then, you know, I had a brother who passed away, but when it comes to childhood cancer, I feel like it's a different world. So today's topic is going to be around end-of-life care. So um, Megan, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and just maybe some important information that
1: other people may need to know about end-of-life? Yes, of course. So um, as Adriana mentioned, I am a pediatric psychologist at Nationwide Children's, and I primarily work in hematology, oncology, and bone marrow transplant. And then I also work within our pain and palliative care roles as well. Um, we see here with our pediatric psychologist at the hospital, we see every patient upon diagnosis. So we follow them into survivorship or into death and dying and, and then supporting the family when they reach bereavement. And one of the things that I think we often talk about, especially in the world of poor prognoses is how do we support patients, families, and that's that can include parents, siblings, grandparents, But how do we support families when they hear the news that a child is diagnosed with some type of cancer that we know is likely incurable, or sometimes we may not always know that at the front end, but when we are realizing that treatment is not working as we had hoped, how do we start to facilitate those conversations Although I work with a lot of different types of diagnoses in oncology, one of my main specialties is neuro-oncology, which tends to have a lot of poor prognoses. And so I, I think this is a conversation that often comes up in the patient care that I provide of how do you talk to your child about dying and how do you support everyone else in the family when we know we're moving to a different stage of the child's illness journey.
0: Okay. It's a very heavy topic. So
1: how did you get into this field of study? Mm-hmm. I think that is a great question that I often I often get asked. So I have always been really interested in pediatric oncology. So when I was in college, I initially thought I wanted to be a pediatric oncologist. So I started out as, as pre-med and I volunteered with just a lot of different like brief camps or really any type of organization that supported kids with cancer. And then my third year of college, I worked at a place called Camp Boggy Creek, which is a part of the Serious Fun Network. They're Paul Newman's camps. And that is a a summer camp where each week there's a different illness. So each week it's kids coming in with cancer or diabetes or something in the GI world. And there are two weeks for for cancer. And during that that week, a lot of different providers that support children in um, the oncology world come to help support this camp. And so that is actually the first time that I learned about the role of a pediatric psychologist in oncology. So I met with a pediatric oncologist and we were just kind of talking about what my interests were. And she was like, it sounds like you don't wanna actually treat the illness. Like you're more interested in helping families cope and helping them support them through all the difficult emotions that come with a pediatric cancer diagnosis. And so when I went back to college following that year, I picked up my psychology major And I was like, oh, I'm going to try this pediatric psychology thing. And luckily it worked out. I got into graduate school and um, I actually worked more in the the GI world. So gastroenterology stuff, like taking medication, transition from pediatric to medical care. But I knew I still always had like a big interest in the cancer world because, again, at that camp, that was a camp that really spoke to me. And so then I did a practica at Children's Hospital of Birmingham. And that's when I was like the first time I solely worked from a clinical care pace with the pediatric oncology population. And I worked a lot with their integrative medicine team. So they had art therapists there and music therapists. And the art therapists did a lot of these, like what we call them like legacy pieces, right? So when we knew that a child had a poor prognosis, she would come in and there would be an art project, whether it was handprints or footprints. And she often used like metaphors to help the child understand what was going on. So one of my favorite examples was there was this young girl who really liked the Wizard of Oz. And so they painted, it was, you know, like handprints and footprints, but they created the scene of like walking up the yellow brick road and the yellow brick road was to heaven. And so they were able to kind of use that canvas in the picture that she created to help her understand sort of what stage she was in her treatment journey, but also to help her understand and within their system of beliefs, what it means to die and what it means to, to go to heaven. it was actually, I always enjoy um, sharing this story because it was really beautiful. All they talked about when the painting was finished, they, the dad, the dad was actually the artist, which was also really cool. He helped to, to paint the picture and he asked her when he was finished, if there was anything else that she would like changed And she had said, I I wish that you made the road bigger so you and mommy could go with me. And I I think that just really speaks again that especially for our younger kids and something we can talk about more, these conversations are really difficult and we have to tailor them developmentally to help children. Because what you do to a five-year-old and what you say to a... 13-year-old looks really different. And in younger kids, one of the things we often talk about is storytelling, right? Using characters and people that they're familiar with. And so that was just a really good example of a story she could relate to that could help her understand where she was in her treatment and also what that would mean in a way that was also like comfortable. It wasn't as anxiety provoking and parents could be very honest with her. So that was sort of how I jumped into more of like the end of life world. I was really interested in supporting families during a time where I feel like it just everything feels like it's falling apart and they don't know which way to turn. And then I was also always interested in grief and bereavement. And so those things have aligned really nicely where when you know the child has a poor prognosis, supporting them with anticipatory grief and then also you know once the child dies still following up with parents and siblings to support them in more of the the grief phase and so it's been a really nice continuation to support families again in a time where you feel like you have very limited control but what can we do to help them cope with really them i think the most unimaginable thing for any family is we we don't ever expect children to to die yeah
0: that's that story is just like so moving it just
1: like makes
0: me want to cry cuz it's like oh you know,
1: it's It's precious. Mm-hmm. It
0: is precious. It's and affecting. it's so sad and unfair that kids have to die. And, and you know, I'm always going to believe that because being in this side of the world where you have a kid who goes through cancer and you do make friends with people whose kids are dying and you're just like, why? Like, why? Mm-hmm. You know? And um, what are you, what do you think are some of the I guess, let me backtrack. Is it common for parents to not want to tell the kid that they're dying? Mm -hmm.
1: So I think that is a, a great question. And that's something that I think we always have conversations about. So it is, I think there are a lot of families who express hesitation about having this conversation. Understandably so. One, you never expect to have to have this conversation with your child. Two, as I mentioned before, this goes completely against the natural order of life, like your mm-hmm. kid should never die before a parent, right? That's just not how we understand yeah. life to work. And three, I think a lot of it stems from fear that if you tell the child that they might give up, right? Or you might scare them and they'll become so fearful that for the time that they have remaining, that it, it might ruin that time, knowing that that mm-hmm. time is is limited, and the, the other thing that we have to be very careful about as providers is recognizing the systems that each family functions in, right? So every family comes in with a different culture or a different set of beliefs, like spiritually or religiously. And so we, I always kind of think about my role as I can share my worries and concerns about not telling a child. And that comes from research right that that we know that is out there but at the same time i have to be gentle about that right because i need to work within the system of the family they may have cultural or religious or spiritual beliefs where telling the child actually feels harmful right and i what i always tell myself as a provider is when the child dies the parents are the ones that live with this experience right they live with the decisions they made and they live with the grief mm-hmm. that they experience and so if i force them to do something because my lens as like a scientist or as a psychologist, I think that's helpful. But if that complicates their grief and their ability to cope with that, then that's a problem, right? And so Mm -hmm. I always think about, I can plant seeds of what I've seen from my own clinical experience and what I know can sometimes be difficult. But then from there, it's really guiding families to make decisions about what's a best fit for their family. There is no right or wrong but there is a right decision for every family, and so my goal is to help guide them. But also, they bring in their own systems, and we want to work together to help them support their child in a way that is is most supportive for them as a system.
0: What do you do with families who are on board with telling the child, and let's say they've got ch- uh, other children that are at home? Um, how do you how do
1: you work with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So another, another good question. And and usually what this looks like is once we have families on board, like they're like, we recognize this is an important conversation. We want to move forward in telling them. Um, We usually have a conversation with just, you know, us as a psychologist, child life is very helpful, social work. We bring in kind of our whole psychosocial team and then usually meet with the caregivers independently to kind of, help build the skills and provide them some anticipatory guidance of what they could expect a child might say or do depending on their age and these types of conversations. So some of the things that we talk about is is one, being very open and honest. So as I talked about before, we try to plant seeds of what we have worries and concerns about if we don't tell the children. And the things that I usually share is no matter how young a child is, they usually know more than we think they do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think that that is important to know. Kids are so bright and they're quick to pick up on even small changes, right? So even if they turn their head quickly and they see mom is crying in their mind, they're going to start to question, I haven't seen mom cry that much. Or why is she upset? Or I've been in the hospital a lot lately, like why? Like that doesn't make sense. Like before I was Mm -hmm. only here once a month and now I've been here for like three weeks straight. So they'll start to piece things together and they also hear stuff, right? As much as -hmm. as medical providers, we try to keep language consistent with families. Sometimes kids will still pick up and hear things, right? So they're starting Mm -hmm. to question. So we worry about that. And I often talk about as well, It's better for a child to worry together with their family than to worry alone. And what happens when a child doesn't have all of the information is they're going to start to worry more because they, they don't have all the puzzle pieces together, right? So they're trying to figure it out, but no one's telling them. And then they're worrying alone, which creates a much more difficult cycle than like having an open conversation with the family. And then the other thing we talk about is sometimes like trust, right? So they feel like they find out four months down the road that their disease had progressed four months ago they could lose trust in the people who are giving them care they could lose trust in their parents because now they don't know if it's a safe space to talk about and now they don't know like are people telling me the truth and then the yeah. other aspect of it is if their time is limited right we want them to know because that empowers them to make decisions about how they want to spend their time so is it? Can we get them to take like a trip with their family, right? Or is there like somebody they really want to meet or a hobby? But you might make different decisions if you have two months left versus three years. And so again, these are things important. It's like it is the child's life and we want to be able to empower them to make those decisions. So those are kind of the seeds that I initially plant. And then once families are are on board, then like I said, we start to have more like role like role modeling and kind of playing out those conversations and preparing them for what that might look like. Um, And so this, I think, again, this is very different depending on what age the child is. So if the child Mm -hmm. is young, we're gonna talk about just, it's kind of planting seeds, short, brief conversations. Because if you give them the whole spiel, it's going to be too overwhelming and they're not going to be able to process it. Versus an adolescent might be able to sit with you for 45 minutes and, and have a really long conversation about that. The tips that we usually give, as as I said before, there is no right or wrong way to do this because we we want it to feel natural for the family. So every family has a different way that they communicate with their child, but being open and honest is really important. And and what I mean by that is actually using the D word. And I I say it as the D word because it's a word that we all like to avoid because it's uncomfortable. It's oh, yeah, super uncomfortable. even as adults. Yeah, it, and it's uncomfortable. Like it's just nobody likes to say that, right? But when we use terms like passed away, gone to sleep, got lost, went to heaven. Sometimes, especially for our younger kids, they can't always like put that piece together. Right. And so just as we kind of talk about when a child is diagnosed, we want to use the C word. We want to say cancer. We want to say these words that the child can understand. And so that there is not confusion about what is happening.
0: Yeah.
1: When they're younger, we need to describe what it means to die. Right. Because younger kids don't always understand like the permanence of death, for example. Right. They Mm -hmm. may think. I die, but then like I come back two weeks later, right? I just go up and like visit some angels and then I come back, right? Like these are thoughts yeah. that they may have or that it's irreversible. And so oftentimes the way we explain this to kids is like your your body stops working, right? Like your heart stops beating or you're not able to breathe or you don't eat anymore and like you you don't sleep anymore. And so trying to help them, like what physically changes in your body to help them understand what it means to die, um, and, and usually the the conversation of, of starting that is you know telling a child and I know this depends on what the diagnosis is, but it's kind of starting that conversation in the sense of you know the doctors and nurses have been doing everything, everything they can to treat your your cancer and sometimes yeah. no matter how much they do, it's it's not enough to fight the disease, right or it's not enough and sometimes the body still like it stops working no matter how many things we do to try. And then kind of using that, like I'm afraid this might be happening for you. And oftentimes we talk about this is super heavy information. So kind of giving a sentence, pausing, seeing how your child responds is their mm-hmm. emotion. Do they they come up with questions? Um, and so like I said, I, I think sometimes it's bite-sized versus sometimes you have a very lengthy conversation. And and the thing that I, I think comes up often is that you validating emotions and following your child's lead, right? Sometimes the child won't respond at all, like in terms of words, but maybe they become very tearful and that's a good opportunity to name the emotion, right? Like, sounds like this is really scary for you. Like, like mom feels this way too. Like, I'm wondering what we can do to, you know, help ourselves. Like, you know, can we go watch a movie or like, maybe, cause maybe that piece of information was enough for that conversation. Yeah. Um. I, I think anytime you open the conversation, conversation one of the important things you always want to emphasize is that as a caregiver you are a safe space and the child is able to ask you anytime they have a question and that you'll always be honest with them. Um, I I think a lot of kids will often ask like will I get better Um, and that's when again they're starting to question that right maybe noticing their body feels different or they feel more fatigued or they're throwing up more or like everyone looks more concerned right and so again, we want to make them know that it's a safe space. And sometimes that's opening up of like, like, what do you think to kind of try to elicit, like, what have they noticed to get an understanding of where they are? Um, or maybe it sounds like that's something really important for you to talk about. Should we talk about that with your doctor the next time they they come visit? Um, and so I think there's different ways that you can respond, because I always tell a caregiver, you know, your child best, right? You're the expert on your child. And so the, I think the biggest key, again, is, is being open and honest, and then how do we support the questions the child has? Um, what does it mean to die, right? Where will I go? That's when the spiritual component or the religious component comes in for families who believe that. Some families, that they may not identify in that realm, and that's yeah. fine, right? But it's, it's, again, supporting what system they operate in and how do you answer those questions. So it really is, it's different for every family that we work with.
0: Yeah, one of the things that you... Mention was, you know, being honest and using the D word, and uh, otherwise, these kids are picking up on body language, right? Like most of mm-hmm. our language is not verbal; it's all mm-hmm. nonverbal language, and so they're picking up on the worry on a face, or you know, just the slumped shoulders or whatever, right? Like mm-hmm. they pick yeah. up, and and you mentioned being very honest because of the way that they think, and that's like that idea that kids have magical thinking. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you said, Man, am I going to come back in two weeks? Right. Like that mm-hmm. is when people say, oh, that person, um, got sick and, and passed away, or that person got sick and is asleep forever. Right. However mm-hmm. you want to word it. They're like, oh my gosh, they create a certain level of anxiety around mm-hmm. getting sick because, oh my gosh, that person mm-hmm. got sick and they're not here anymore. Like they can understand after they, you know, actually see somebody die and it's it's permanent. Right. Um, they may not understand it fully, but they see mm-hmm. that it is permanent. That person's still not coming back. I mean, I, when my brother passed away right before my brother or my brother passed away before my son's diagnosis, mm-hmm. my eldest son was very aware of death. And mm-hmm. so his, one of his first questions when I said, Hey, Your brother's, you know, your brother's really sick. Um, I told him they think they have a tumor in his head Mm -hmm. and it's, it's the kind that's not good that grows and grows and it's very dangerous. And he's like, is my brother going to die? And my response was, I don't know. Like Mm -hmm. we are getting him to the doctors um, to, you know, trying to find the best doctors to help get Mm -hmm. him healthy again but I can't answer that question. I hope he doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was the way that we handled that conversation. That was like a really hard conversation. I can tell you now without yes. like crying, but if I like actually like put myself in that
1: moment, you're yeah. like, I don't know, you know? Like, it like takes your breath away, right? Cause again, it's yeah. such scary information. And I appreciate you highlighting that that uncertainty because that's what it, in pediatric oncology, like that's the feeling that you get, right? Like there's so much uncertainty and you don't mm-hmm. you don't know. And that's what provokes all of that anxiety. And it sounds like you handled that conversation Beautifully, because you were honest, right? We don't always know when a child is diagnosed what the long-term outcome is, right? And so being honest of saying, I don't know, and buddy, if that ever changes where I, I know the different outcome, like I will always let you know. And that, again, it creates a safe space of, we can't, none of us can predict the future, right? And at this point, we don't know the exact answer, but if anything changes, you will always be one of the first people to know. And you can always come to me and ask questions and I will help you find the answer. And so, um, again, I I think that you're right. That I think that also adds anxiety sometimes to the conversation because they're like, what if they ask me something that I don't know? And the answer is it's okay to not know. We don't expect you. We don't know the answers. Right. And again, just being honest of highlighting like this sucks, not knowing. Um, and again, as we find out more information, we will let you know.
0: Yeah. And the magical thinking, you know, when they start piecing together things, and we aren't being upfront, they create a much more dramatic Mm -hmm. um, storyline in their head, which creates a lot more anxiety and fear. Mm -hmm. Um, I did have somebody reach out to me on social media one day because I had reposted somebody else's like, use the appropriate terminology and my my goodness I like offended somebody because they were like how dare you tell us to use the word death and like be this honest like it is something that you know it should be in the hands of each family and I'm like I understand that I'm sorry Mm -hmm. that you're offended but this is this is kind of why the reasoning is the way that it is like science has shown that You know, kids do have that magical thinking and it makes it so much more scary for them when we're not Mm -hmm. being age appropriate, like in using the word death instead of passing away. Like I, we were just talking about somebody who passed away recently and I was in front of my kids and I was like. This person passed away. Like I could tell they were <laughs> listening in the background, but I'm like, it's not about anybody else. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's
1: in that, family. Yes. <laughs> and I think like, I like because it's it sounds softer, right? Like I feel yes. better when I say that. And I I still do it like all the time. And then I'll have to like correct myself, especially if it's like communicating and, and using the words, but I really think it just like the human notion of it. If it feels more comfortable to say, because it sounds lighter yeah. than using death and and dying. Um, but as you said, oftentimes that tends to lead to more confusion for for younger kids and doesn't really help clarify. The, the message. Um, and, and you're right, back to what we were saying before, of every family is going to have different preferences. And I like I said, I, I don't think there really is a right or wrong. We can share what we know and what has been difficult for kids, but then trying to work with families um, because, again, I don't want them to experience distress of doing something mm-hmm. that they didn't agree with. But it's tough, right? And again, I think that highlights how different every family system is and how it's such a unique approach that we have to do for each family when they're, when they're faced with these circumstances. What have you noticed in
0: like, well, actually I have two questions. So before I transition to the other one, I'm going to like write it down before I forget it. But my, (laughs) my next question is, um, I've had several parents When I had asked about like, what, what advice do you give other parents when there, there is no more left to do, right? When the doctors say we've done all that we can do. Um, one of the most common feedback that I got was parents giving their child permission to go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you see that in the hospital setting as something that parents struggle to do or like is that even anything that comes up in your world, I guess?
1: yeah. I, I think kind of as we were talking about, you know, now I think more kids are choosing to die at home because it feels more comfortable. So I think kind of we're not always necessarily there when the when the child dies, but we're certainly following up via phone. and then we have our hospice team out there who probably sees more of of those experiences. Um, but there are certainly our kids who still, who still die here in the the hospital. And I think that goes back to like very family specific. Again, I, I think we've heard from a lot of parents, especially when they feel like their child has suffered a lot, right, of, of giving them permission or feeling like their child is hanging on because they're, they're worried about their parents. I, I think those are conversations that happen a lot, Um, even before like the child is imminently dying, especially like when we're having one-on-one conversations with the children, we often hear of like, I'm really worried, you know, how mom is going to be like when I die, like, is she going to still be able to be a parent to my other siblings? Is she going to be able to still work or like our mom and dad, you know, sometimes we know like the, the likelihood of sometimes more marital conflict with this, right? Mm-hmm. Like our mom and dad going to keep fighting Will they stay together. Right. And they, they worry about all of these things. And again, I think that gives them kind of at times at end of life, right, of feeling like they need to hang on because they're worried about what will happen um, if they if they do die. And so I think in those situations where families are aware that that might be, sometimes you might see more of like giving permission um, and saying, you know, how much they love them, how much they have loved all of the time that they've Spent together, and that their wish is they don't want to see the child in pain anymore. They don't want to see the child suffering. And, and again, whether they have spiritual religious beliefs, maybe it's giving them permission to see Grandpa in heaven or or whatever that that might look like. Um, so I definitely don't think that's uncommon. I think a lot of a lot of parents do. And I, I again, I think sometimes that gives parents a sense of peace as well, and it allows them all to just kind of really be in those really fragile moments and being vulnerable of mm-hmm. giving permission and being in the space where you're you're loving on your child and those final days of, it's about comfort, right? And again, what families do in that time of comforting their child looks different. But I think that is one thing that we sometimes see parents do. Oh
0: my goodness. That's just so like heavy. It is.
1: It is. And I, I, I think, again, I can only can only imagine what it's like for a parent to, because when we talk about decision-making, right, every parent wants their child to survive, right? And I think that's the hard part when we're talking, when we're you know bringing in palliative care and we're trying to help guide decisions, it is super hard as a parent to choose to pursue comfort care rather than keep going at a cure. Um, and But again, we know sometimes there are some illnesses that they can't be cured. And if we keep trying all these aggressive treatments, the children are actually suffering right without really mm-hmm. that benefit of quality of life um and as you said it's it's heavy for a parent to pursue anything differently and we always try to talk about with parents of like what a brave decision that is that you love your child enough to like that, that you can make a like a decision like that because it's so hard right it's so hard yeah. to make a decision that you're no longer treating the tumor anymore but that is a decision that's made purely out of love because you do not want to see your child suffer anymore. And they're not living the type of life that would, that would bring them joy. Right. Um, but again, I think it when we think about all those decisions that parents have to make in this time point, it's, it really is heartbreaking. That is
0: so hard. And I know a lot of parents, um, they feel a lot of guilt. Um, they might feel confident in the decision as confident as you can feel in, in making that decision to, you know, um, do palliative hospice type stuff. But, um, the struggle is still there for them. Like the guilt, like, I feel like I am giving up, but at the same time, like people are telling them, you know, keep doing it, just have faith, keep praying. And they're dealing not only like with the internal struggle to make that decision, but they're also hearing like all these external, people that Mm -hmm. are invalidating that decision, that very, very, very difficult decision that they've had to make. And, you know, it's just made my eyes water a little bit when I was hearing you talk.
1: And again, I kind of as your own experience, like you feel that, right? And again, even when your child's outcome is different, like decisional regret and fear. And as you said, that overwhelm of all of the influence that you have when you're making, like these are no easy decisions at all. And there's so many factors you have to consider. And I always say, like, when we think about guilt, too, as much as you can, like, logically rationalize of, like, I did all the things that I I could, doesn't mean that your heart stops feeling guilt, right? Like, guilt is not an emotion that you can just, like, wash away. And it really is one of the heavier emotions, especially in terms of, like, a parent-child relationship, right? Because every parent wants what's best for their child and to love on them in every way that they can. And... Um, as you mentioned, sometimes you'll have other people kind of swarming you with all these other opinions and options and other things to consider. And that's, that's a lot um, because it's hard enough to even just kind of center within your family to, to make those decisions. And it, it's, it's yeah. just a truly complicated process.
0: It definitely is a feeling of like being judged, like judgment, mm-hmm. people are judging your decision and it's like, you, mm-hmm. you will not know how hard that decision was until you've had to walk that walk. Unfortunately, they haven't had to walk that walk because that is not, that is not an easy thing to do or go through. Mm -hmm. So I think one of my final questions would be um, in regards to like aftercare, like once the child passes away um, and you're, you see families, you know, grieving, what yeah. can you tell those families um that things that they may, may want to be aware of, things that they should know, thing, you know, when to seek help, whatever mm-hmm. it is insight you can provide to families when they are grieving the loss of their
1: child. I'm so glad you asked that question because I again I think this is another very important topic to to discuss. And when when it Family is is grieving. I I think, you know, the bereavement care looks so different across institutions and I think is still generally an underserved area, right? Like it's definitely Mm -hmm. a hot topic right now, of how we can expand, especially, you know, following the pandemic, we're just realizing like bereavement in general, right? Like our our world needs to do a better job of of focusing on this. Um, And so I, I think, again, at institutions, it looks very different on what that support looks like i appreciate here where i work because we meet families so early on we're talking about anticipatory grief so early that a lot of those skills and education it's just kind of like a nice journey and it it paves into those phone calls after the child has died and we're you know connecting with them for supports and i know not every institution is is able to do that so i I think to kind of broaden advice of having somebody follow up with grief and, and bereavement care i think is really talking about like normalizing grief. And so I think there's Mm -hmm. like a few myths that often come up with grief that we always want to help kind of combat because we don't want families to feel guilt about that. So one, there is no right or wrong way to grieve, right? Everybody's Mm -hmm. going to grieve differently. Um, It's not a linear process, right? Those five stages don't happen necessarily in order. You might not experience every one of those stages. They might be just like a giant, like ball of yarn, like all mixed and like, none of those are right or wrong ways. Like I always say that grief is like a fingerprint. Everybody has their own and there is no right or wrong way to to do it. So I think that's an important part. There's also no timeline to grief. And so Mm -hmm. that's kind of giving people permission. You're going to grieve for the rest of your life because grief is, I always say, it's kind of like a sign of like the love that you still have, right? That person is Mm -hmm. not physically present, but the feelings of grief you have is because you loved that person so much. So that lasts as long as you're also alive, right? Because you will feel that hole and their their lack of, of physical presence. Um, and again, I think that gives people permission because sometimes in our society, there's these expectations of like, in a week, you should just go back to work and you should be parenting your other kids as as normal and hanging out with your friends and doing all your hobbies. And yes, while well, those things... Are important, we have to give ourselves permission to really like sit in the yuckiness of it all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what we know is if you don't process grief, right, it's gonna keep building. And that's when we start to see more of those like long-lasting impairments. Um, so again, giving permission, you're gonna have days where it feels like it just happened yesterday, and you're gonna have days where you're like, I got this, right? Like, acknowledging the hard, but like I'm doing the things. And 30 years from now, you could still have a day that feels like it just happened yesterday, and that is okay. I think when we start to talk about seeking help or more like professional counseling is, is really when grief becomes significantly impairing. Um, and the timeline of that, I, I think can can be different. What I mean by significantly impairing is like, if you can't get out of bed, right. Or like you feel like you haven't been able to kind of uphold any of those other parts of your identity. Like, can you still be a partner to your spouse or have you been able to parent your child, like, are you not eating? Are you not sleeping? Right. Like a lot of those symptoms again, that can often like mimic like depression or anxiety, Mm -hmm. right? Like this. So, so those are the things where it's like, it may be helpful to talk to somebody who can give you, you know, evidence-based strategies of how to, to cope with that. I, I think the, sometimes the hard part is we never want to pathologize grief because it's normal, right? When you experience these things, it's normal. But when it becomes significantly impairing and you've completely lost your identity and able to do those things, that's where it becomes more concerning of seeing a professional might help get you back on track to work along the grief. Because I always say you never move on from this, you move forward, mm-hmm. right? So our goal is to kind of Yeah, help you that's what that's my forward. slogan. <laughs> I love that. That's perfect. How do you move forward with this, right? And so I, I think building building skills for that. And the other thing, you know, we assess for is also for like siblings, right? And so sometimes mm-hmm. again, I think we're lucky here sometimes siblings will come back and we'll see them for a few sessions. And the the biggest coping strategy that I think for everybody is what we call the scientific or the fancy word is like continuing bonds, right? But essentially, how do you remain connected to your child who is no longer here? And I think that that is one of the most healing things for parents, grandparents, siblings, and that can look a lot of ways, right? That can be celebrating their birthday every year right that can be if you know every time it's a holiday you're you're getting them like an ornament for the tree that can be running a race in their memory starting an organization it can be creating a pillow of their like shirt or like a teddy bear that has like parts of you know clothing items Mm -hmm. that they are wearing a necklace with their fingerprint like those can mean so many different things but I, i think those things are truly of Recognizing, yes, your child is not physically present, but how do you still talk to them? How do you still remember them? Because that keeps their spirit alive. Um, And one of the biggest things I always hear from parents is they are worried that their child will be forgotten. And so if you Mm -hmm. intentionally schedule ways that you still celebrate and honor the life of your child, I think that can be most healing. And because of that, my advice to people just out in society is the best thing you can do for a grieving parent or a grieving sibling is to ask them about the person who died. And although there still may be tears and it can be difficult, you asking them lets them know that like their child is still remembered, that their child is still important to you, whether it was like memories or something that reminded you of them. And so as a provider, I often try to think of that. Can I call them, you know, like a parent on like a birthday to say like, Hey, I'm thinking about you. And like, this is like a special Mm -hmm. day or when like something reminds me of like a patient, can I like call the family to let them know like something happened today. And it really reminded me of of Joey. Um, I think that is a very easy intervention that we can all do to support people who are grieving just to really keep their memory alive.
0: I know a lot of people struggle with that, even like, you know my beloved spouse when his, uh, grandparent died. And I was like, I need to, you know, reach out to your mom. And he's like,
1: no, don't do that.
0: (laughs) He's like, You're going to make her think about it and make her cry. Right. And this is like early on in, in the days when I was a very new therapist and I'm like, well, I guess maybe I really shouldn't reach out to her. (laughs) And I'm like, I should have reached out to her. Like that's, (laughs) you know, like this is so it's, But that is something that I hear people say all the time. It's like, I'm afraid to, to ask Mm -hmm. the person about it because I'm afraid that I'm going to make them cry. Mm -hmm. So like the idea that this, this person is going to cry regardless, right? Like Mm -hmm. whether you bring up their name or not, and their tears might make you comfortable. You don't have to solve their tears. Like you Mm -hmm. have, you did not cause their tears. You did not Mm -hmm. cause their pain. It's already there. And you bringing that person, you know, their child's name back up and, seeing them visibly begin to have you know emotion it it might be grief but it's also maybe a little bit of like relief that somebody is noticing that i you know i have a loved one who is no longer here and mm-hmm. that that love continues and i'm struggling and to be seen mm-hmm. and in that situation what do you tell people when when people are like oh my gosh i just made them cry like what tips would you give to somebody who's on the receiving end of the tears.
1: Yes. So I always tell them again, a lot of times I think that tear is like it's it's like relief but it's also like this idea of like they remembered my child, right? Like to hear and those I think those tears are are healing, right? Like because again, it's it's remembering the child. And oftentimes what I hear from people who are grieving is they say like they lose a lot of their social support, right? Where they yeah. feel like because an I think that happens is because sometimes people don't know what to say or because they're worried that they're going to cause emotions. And so I think, again, within within our society of normalizing, like tears are not necessarily a bad thing. Right. And again, the one of the biggest gifts that you can give them, even if it brings tears, is you shared a memory with their child, right? Like you brought their child into their day. And that's hugely important because you think about outside of special holidays and things like that a lot of people will probably avoid that topic in their life, right? So mm-hmm. you brought a piece of their child to their day, which again, is like one of the most important things for for these family members. And I I, I think again, for people, it's it's the ability to sit with uncomfortable emotions, right? And it's something we can all work on Of when somebody <laughs> is sad, right? How do you sit with that? Because as you said, it's not to be fixed. We're not asking you to it this is something that families you, you carry grief with you but the the best thing you can do is sit and be present like you're you're a witness to the emotions that they have and you're honoring their child and that that is powerful um, and so teaching people to, to sit with that. And sometimes again, there is no words other than sharing like your favorite story of Joey, right? Like something yeah. like your favorite memory, um, and then allowing to just like sit with, yes, it brings tears, but there is, there's a mix of that sadness that he's no longer here, but also like joy of like, what a great memory that was. And thank you so much for remembering my child. So I think it's the ability to be comfortable with the uncomfortable, which is a, a skill for all of us to learn. I know it's,
0: a. Uh you know, in grad school is where I learned the idea of don't tell that person, don't cry, don't cry. Right. Mm-hmm. And which is funny. Cause even in, I don't know if you do this in your therapeutic practice. Um, but we were even trained. they're like, if someone's crying, don't hand them the box of tissues because mm-hmm. that's like them receiving the message of I'm not comfortable with your tears, which is just so funny. Cause you know, you're like, that person's like, they're snotty. Like they need a box of tissue Mm -hmm. and I'm sitting here going, (laughs) would you like a box of tissue? At some point you got to break the rules. Right. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I would say like the big thing in those situations is like not telling somebody not to cry because that will make them feel, um, like it's too much for somebody, right? Like it'll Mm -hmm. bring on some of that guilt and shame, like, oh my gosh, like I'm unloading onto somebody and, um, Mm -hmm. whatever other thoughts and feelings that come with that, like, this is too much for them. You know, I can't show my emotions with anybody. I'm all alone. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I mean, in that situation, just I'm okay sitting with the uncomfortable, but I think That's because Mm -hmm. I've had to do that. Right. And in in practice as a therapist, Mm -hmm. but for someone who's not, um, what do you tell them? Like, how do you tell them to like respond to that? Like, just, I'm so sorry. Like, how do you know? Like,
1: I I think the most important part is when somebody is grieving or is in more of that like emotional episode of just letting them, I always, I think kind of like a saying that we often talk about is I know there's nothing I say that I can say that's going to like take away the pain or the way that you feel. Um, but please know that like, I'm here for you and I'm going to sit with you with this, or if you ever need anything, like I'm always here. And I, I think that's the most important thing that people want to hear is. That you're you're there for them, right. And again, even though you haven't walked the specific journey, you will be a, a support for them. Um, but also acknowledging that like that, that that person recognizes there's nothing they're gonna do to take away that pain, right? You can't you can't fix grief. Um, And so I think that sometimes that's kind of takes off that, that weight of feeling like, oh my gosh, if they are crying, like I have to make them feel better, but that's not what the person wants. Right. Mm -hmm. Again, the person wants somebody who can sit with them. And so being able to to sit with them and recognize you can't fix it, but yet by sitting with them, you're showing them that you are a, a primary support, that you're going to be there for them. And I think, again, that helps both people feel better of, you're witnessing this and you're allowing me to be me and, and share in all these emotions, but you're not trying to problem solve it. Like, Oh, do you want me to like go get your like favorite food? Right? Like we really, because we're uncomfortable, we jump in with problem solving when really people just want people to sit with them, be supportive, give them a hug, right? Like very simple things like that can be the greatest comfort for somebody who's grieving. Oh,
0: give them a hug. I would even say, just ask, can I give you a hug. Um, mm-hmm. Cause even like yesterday, I, so yesterday was my brother's five-year anniversary and I was all in the fields. Cause like, we actually, we did organ donation for my brother. And yesterday my brother's, you know, wife, I guess, you know, she's, I still consider her my sister-in-law. Of course. Um, she sent me a letter about uh, from the person who received his heart. And it was the last person that oh. it's five years ago. And we had yet to hear from him and, and we received a letter from the family and i'm like sitting there like in tears and my husband's just staring at me like trying to be silent yeah. <laughs> in the room and i just want to be like just give me a hug you yes. know, like come close to me like i right. i need to be able mm-hmm. to just feel like you don't know what to do with this like mm-hmm. a gentle touch you know um yeah. even if it's like on the shoulder on the on the elbow mm-hmm. like Their hand. Can I offer you a hug? Something, um, and that person could say no, right, and don't like offended by it because some people don't want to be touched or held when Mm -hmm. they're Mm -hmm. in their emotions, but some people
1: want that eventually. Yeah, right. I think anything that sends the message that you're here and this is a hard thing, but like. You're not, you're not going to leave them because they're going through hard, right? That you're going to be with them through thick and thin. And that message looks different for people, but figuring out what feels supportive in the moments of thick, um, I think that tends to be more supportive rather than jumping in of like trying to do all these things to fix it, acknowledging you can't fix this, right? It's it's heavy, but you can show that you're going to be a constant support. And that truly is what is most meaningful for, for grieving people.
0: Well, Megan, I just appreciate all your insight um i do have one final question of course yeah and this Go one's a it. little personal yeah um what is it like for you as a clinician mm-hmm. when you've had somebody pass away mm-hmm. um how do how do you or just the office handle that like the clinic how do the people mm-hmm. in clinic respond to a loss and just to help bring some of that yeah, you know you're human and you're in this too, and yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'd I'd love to hear what it's like yeah. for y'all as professionals. I, when I really
1: away. appreciate that question. I think it's important and something that we don't talk about enough in in hospitals. And I appreciate you bringing. In, we are human, right? Even though we're psychologists and oncologists and and nurses, we experience that too, right? Like I grieve when my when my patients die. And so again, I think it's really important that we talk about how healthcare providers cope with their grief. And one thing I've learned that we, again, just as I said, grief is a unique fingerprint. We we all do our own things and what helps us cope. And so some of the things that I think are important is as as a team perspective, debriefings, right? So oftentimes we'll do, like we do like neuro-oncology rounds. So we always have time reserved within our rounds where we have like a little spot where we kind of have like a memorial for our patient, right? And we go around and everyone shares favorite memories or things that they'll always remember about the patient or things that like, maybe they have influenced their care, right? Like what have I learned from this patient that will now allow me to be a better psychologist for my other patients? So I think those conversations, like intentionally taking the moment to reflect on that is is really helpful. And then I think reaching out to your colleagues, right? We all have different relationships with our patients. Some are closer to patients than others, but reaching out and recognizing because you all have that relationship with the patient, you're all grieving in your own way. So Mm -hmm. letting each other know whether that's, do you go out and get dinner, right? And just like be with each other and appreciate that presence. Is it like a quick hug in the hallway, right? Like that looks different depending on your relationship with your team members. Um, I think something that like, that's more personal to me is I always try to think about something that reminds me of the patient or maybe something the patient really liked to do. And so like when I hear about that the patient has died, like maybe I'll go watch their favorite movie or like maybe if their favorite color was purple, I'll wear purple the next day, right? Or just try to find those kind of back to that continuing bonds of like, how can I still feel connected. And mm-hmm. honestly, as a, as a provider, when we make those bereavement follow-up phone calls, um, again, they're, of course, targeting and supporting the families. But for me to have the opportunity to share the memories and the way that that patient has made me a better provider, like that's meaningful to me as well. And so that is another, you know, thing that is important to me is to be able to connect with their families after the child has died, because those are relationships that were important to me too. Like We get to know these families, really well. Um, and then I have like, I kind of have a folder of, you know, like if they gave you like drawings or just different things when you see them throughout their journey, right. You, you, there's things that they give. Um, and I, I keep a lot of those things in like a special folder in my office. And sometimes like when you're having a hard day pulling that out, or sometimes you'll get messages or people will send cards. Right. And kind of, I call it kind of my like happy or uplifting folder. And I'll go into that and just think like, this is why you do what you do. Right. And mm-hmm. again, I think it's a way that I still, feel connected. Um, but there's lots of times where I like see a patient, it's like, gosh, she really remind me of so-and-so. Right. And that's a nice moment to just reflect on the way that they positively impacted me. Um, but I also love again, to hear from their parents to, to connect, mm-hmm. because I, I think it's helpful for all of us. It's memory sharing. And again, that's one of the most powerful things I think you can do when somebody that you cared for is no longer physically present. Well, thank you
0: for sharing that with us. Cause you know, no I think, Like you said, a lot of times people forget that you guys are human and that you are also struggling in clinic when, when a child dies and, Mm -hmm. um, we don't as clinicians get to show that side of us to clients, right. Mm -hmm. Um, when they're struggling. And so, um, I do appreciate you being open and honest about Mm -hmm. that. So of course, happy to. Well, thank you so much, Megan. I've loved our conversation. Too, um, I'm sure I could fun. continue to have more and more questions. <laughs> so don't be surprised if I'm like, can you come back for a part two? Because oh, other people might have, have some to questions. Out. <laughs> so <laughs> I well, thank,
1: to help.
0: thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you guys enjoyed hearing um, all sorts of information from Megan in, in terms of, you know, uh, end of life care and just some tips and valuable resources that, could be helpful for you and your family if this is what you've encountered. So if you have any questions, please feel free to message me, or you can also find Dr. Megan Schaefer on, I know for sure for Twitter, do you have any other, do you want to share how they can reach you in case they want to get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, I think Twitter or, um, that's probably the best. That's probably the best way in terms of reaching out on Twitter. You could probably also see my um, nationwide children's page. But I don't think my contact information is necessarily on there. So what's your Twitter handle? Oh, that's a great question. What is it? Let's see. <laughs> I should know that off, off the bat that I don't. Let me double check here.
0: Here. You had all the answers to all the hard,
1: tough questions. I,
0: know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I don't know my usernames
1: or any of your <laughs> oh, It is Dr. M, as in Megan Schaefer. So Dr. M Schaefer. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I hope uh, we
0: can continue our conversation on a future <laughs> date.
1: That thank sounds you. good. Thank you.
0: If you have found this podcast helpful or you just love the mission for family chemotherapy, please kindly rate this podcast. Also, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest for additional resources that I do share daily. Please tag and share your friends and other pediatric cancer families that you think would benefit from any of the content from Family Chemotherapy. Thank you, and I can't wait to share the next episode. Together, we can help heal the whole family.